Okay, ladies, welcome. Welcome. Glad you all are here for the last session of Ruth. Um, this is a phenomenal chapter. You all, everything, everything we see in this book gets fulfilled and wrapped up and promises realized, and it is an amazing chapter. So there is a lot in chapter four. There's been a lot in the other chapters, but in this one, there is so much. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So everybody turn to Ruth chapter four as I read. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, Redeem it, but if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance." Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attending in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went to her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned Israel. 
He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we are so thankful for this evening and this chance once again to get together, to read your word together, to study your word. And Lord, we just desire to glean everything from this last chapter that you have for us. Father, I pray that you open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your word tonight. Lord, open our ears so that we not only hear, but we understand. And also, Lord, according to James, Father, we want to not only be hearers of your word, we want to be doers. So, Father, I just pray that you show each and every one of us how to apply this word to our lives personally. I thank you and praise you for this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. So, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down. He turned aside and sat down. So again, here we see um, the timing Remember what we talked about last week. Sometimes we lose our timing because of these chapters and because of these breaks. But this is the morning after the night on the threshing floor. So very little time has passed here. He is immediately going to the gate. He sent a message he wasn't going to rest, and he immediately gets started on the work. So he goes up to the gate, and he sits down. Now, the gate of the city served as both a town hall and a courthouse. This is where business transactions occurred. This is where disputes were decided. This was a very important place within a city. So when you hear the word gate, get out of your head a little swinging garden gate. You all, this was a huge edifice. So look at your picture here because these cities... They were all walled for protection. So think of um, Joshua going around the wall. And these walls were so thick, people actually had their homes within the walls. Think of Rahab. So these walls and these gates were massive. So it was like a town hall. Okay? So the elders would meet within the gate. One thing I want to introduce you to today is just the idea of doing individual word studies. If you haven't done this, it will change the way you read the Bible. 
So last week I showed you just a Bible dictionary. Today, if you don't have a concordance, yes, ladies, you need a good concordance. Um, all you do, all you do is you pick a word, and I am a true believer. There is not a word in the scripture not worth digging into. Not a name, not a number that we're going to see, not a detail that's not worthy of some study. So a couple things to know when you're doing word studies that make this even more meaningful. First off, you want to look for the number of the times the word occurs. Okay. Sometimes things are mentioned over and over and over again, sometimes hundreds of times. That tells us something. Sometimes a word is in there one time. That speaks to us as well, okay? So notice how often a word is in the word. And next, look for the first time it is mentioned. This is actually called the law of first mention. And I have it in your notes here, and it just means that God indicates within the first mention of a subject the essence of that word or subject, okay? So I've got a couple here that um, one you're going to work through on your own, and that word is garments. We hit on clothing at one point. We're going to hit on it again in Esther. So if you want to look at that word garments and study that out. Um, the second is the word love. This one blew my mind when I first heard this, you all. The first time... The word love is ever mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 22. Think about what all has happened. All of creation, which God loved, creating men and women, which he loved, he loves. We have the first marriage. Obviously, they loved each other. We had the first child being born. So evidence of love everywhere, but that word is not used until Genesis 22. And if you want to turn there, I've got it on your notes, but Genesis 22, 2, this is when God is talking to Abraham and he says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, another thing I want to show you is the law of progressive mention. And that means you all, after this first mention, as the word continues to be used throughout the word, more revelation is given and it's made increasingly clear what this word means. So if we think of the first mention of this word, Abraham sacrificing his son, and we go all the way, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God, this is the essence of love. It is sacrifice giving the world tells us it's this crazy emotional thing that we feel it's this 
finding this person that's going to make all our hopes and dreams come true. Oh, you all love is sacrifice and it is giving. If we were told that before we got married, our marriages <laughs> might last a little longer. They might be a little better. This is the essence of love. Not that you can't have all those other things with it. Absolutely. But those are benefits to love. It's not the essence of love. So when you look at a word within the scripture, new things will be open to you as you begin to study them out. So for one, I have for you here for practice thought you could do the word gate. It's a very interesting word throughout the scripture, and it's very important. So I tell you how many times it's within the word, where it is first mentioned. There's some other scriptures there that really highlight this word. These are not all. This word is mentioned many, many times. 222. Thank you. (laughs) So yes, but just... This week, if you can, just take some time and look through this word because, again, this will be an important one when we get to Esther as well. So, Boaz says to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now, not only are we not told this other person's name, a phrase is used here that's very important in the original text, and it is, and I'm going to try my hardest to say this, Piloni Almonli. It's written there for you. <laughs> but you all, this is very telling. In the King James, this phrase says, Ho such a one. And it is a Hebrew idiom that is used in place of a proper noun, and it just means anonymous one. It would be like us today saying, hey, buddy, hey, you, Mr. So-and-so, okay? Now, think, think through this. Boaz knew this person's name. It's very likely his relative. He knew his name. Why was it omitted? And I'm going to suggest it is a purposeful omission on behalf of the narrator of this story. Okay? And there's two possibilities why it wasn't omitted. Could be one, could be the other, could be both. I'm going to go with both. So, the first is simply, we know, we, we went through the law here of the Leverite marriage. Okay? If someone refuses the sister-in-law to give her a child to continue the name, okay? If you remember this, if somebody refuses that, it, it was a shameful thing for them to do. It was not required, but it was expected, okay? So could it be that this man, who we know is going to refuse this, does his name get blotted out of history? Because he did not perpetuate the family name? Possibly. Because we never know it. We will never know it. No one knows the name of this man. And he was the nearer kinsman. 
Or secondly, and here's the one that almost gives me chills, you all. Ruth didn't need to know the name, and neither do we. There is one name that we need to know for salvation. We have one Redeemer. That is the name we need to know, no other. And if you look at Acts 4.12, it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. So why don't we know it? We just don't need to. We just don't need to. Um, So he turned aside and he sat down. So Boaz says it, and he does it. Then he gathers ten men or elders of the city, and he tells them, sit down here. And they sat down. Again, we're seeing here, he's a man of power. I mean, he says things, and people do it. Okay? This nearer kinsman, and then elders in the city. So who are these elders? Well, elders would be likened to city leaders, sort of like councilmen. Um, they were witnesses to transactions. They, divide, they decided cases that were brought before them like judges. So I've got some verses there for you in your connection section that you can look at this week, which will give you a very clear idea of what kinds of jobs these elders had. And you're going to see, as you dig into these, there's also a connection between the elders and the gate. Those things are mentioned together very, very often. So you can have a look at that this week. So why 10? All numbers in the Bible have significance. And this goes along with the idea I gave you last week, I believe, on that Um, expositional constancy, do you remember that? That the same things are used over and over and over again to send messages. Last week, if you remember, Boaz sent Naomi a message by sending her six measures of meal. That would make no sense to us. But to her, she knew what six meant, that it was work, that he was not going to stop working until this matter had been resolved, okay? Because seven, we know, is the day of rest. So seven and three are two of the most important numbers throughout the whole scripture, okay? Seven, we're going to hit big time when we get to Esther. But today or this week, another thing you can do a little work on here is just the number three. It is fascinating, and, and when you think of three, think not only of the number three, but um, third, okay? And I want you to look into the third day. We hit on that even week one with the typology, okay? Now, the third day is very important throughout Scripture. And for that one, for the occurrence, I'm not totally sure because when you have an concordance, you all, it's just going to say third, And it will be third day, third hour, third this. So I just went through and highlighted it and counted it. I might have miscounted, but I believe it's 39. So the first mention of this one I'm going to give to you because this one's a little tricky. Okay? 
When you look at the first mention of the third day, it's in Genesis, okay? Genesis 1.13, and it's merely the third day of creation. So what, why is that so significant? Well, you, you need to backtrack and read all of creation, okay? Because something very interesting happens. The first day of creation, God creates, and he says, it is good. The second day, he creates wonderful things, but he does not say it is good. Look at it. The third day of creation, he creates, and twice he says, it is good. It is good. To a Hebrew, this third day became the day of double blessing. And then you will see, as you study out this idea of third day, it is truly a day of double blessing. It is a day of fulfillment, a day of completion. You are going to be shocked at how many things happen on the third day because obviously, ladies, this leads up to the third day. The third day, the most important day, where 1 Corinthians 15.4 says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. So dig into that one this week. I think you'll have a lot of nice surprises with that phrase. So back to number 10. 10 is known as the symbol of authority and government on the earth. It comes from just 10 commandments, okay? Now, what is fascinating here, you all, is 10 would be far more than what Boaz needed as witnesses. There's a couple verses where you can do um, some digging in Deuteronomy, and you will find you all a person could actually be put to death on the witness of two or three witnesses. And he's bringing in 10 to witness this transaction? Shows us he's going above and beyond what he needs to do here. Okay? He is making sure no questions can be asked about what he is going to, about these proceedings. So, he, we see he's a man of integrity, you all. This, to me, shows he's going to be an incredible husband because he's already showing himself, you all, to be an incredible public official. Everything he's doing is above board here far beyond what he needs to do as required by the law. So, as an application here, just think through this this week, you all. He did not go about this the easy way. Um, again, th this is a very powerful man, quite possibly the most powerful man in town. Do you think he could have gotten this thing done if he wanted to do it? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. But we never see him trying to circumvent the law, trying to find a loophole in the law, <laughs> trying to get around the law, trying to do anything other than not only buy the book, but even more than what the book tells him to do. So, so he says to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So, it's difficult to overstate the importance of the land. Okay? You all, we could spend our next eight weeks on looking at the importance of the land, and we could not cover it all. Okay? So, I'm going to give you a couple highlights here. You're going to notice in this section there's a lot of red... So a lot of things that you can do on your own here to really get the idea of how important this land was to the people. So in Genesis 12:1, this is where we see God first promising Abraham the land, the promised land. In 12:3, we hear that people and nations that bless and honor the covenant that he gives to Abraham will be blessed. And those that do not will be cursed. In Genesis 15, this is where we get the perimeter of the land is laid out. The actual geographical borders are explained to us. In Genesis 17, this land is called an everlasting possession. This land was not given to them for a time. It was given to them forever, everlasting. This is one of the everlasting covenants in the Word. It is still in effect today. Okay, very important. In Joshua and Numbers, if you remember, we saw the division of the land Every tribe was given a piece of the promised land. And then within their piece, every family got a certain parcel depending on the size of their family. Okay? This was their personal inheritance. So this was incredibly important to these families. And though we know not everyone was successful in getting their land and a lot of mess happened, this did not negate the covenant. It was theirs forever. So, again, we cannot overstate the importance of this land being their inheritance. So, one of the connections I want you to do this week, and you can dig into it here, is the story of Naboth's vineyard. And this is found in 1 Kings, and I've got all the notes in here for you so that you can look things up. Um, several places in 1 Kings and also in 2 Kings. But I want to give you a brief summary because I really want you to see something here. If you know the story, this was under the reign of King Ahab. So one day Ahab is just standing on his wall pretty much and he looks over and connected to his property is a vineyard that belongs to Naboth. He's like, oh, I want that because it's right next, to, right next to my own place. So he goes over to Naboth, and he offers to 
trade with him, to buy it for whatever. He wants this piece of land, okay? And here is Naboth's exact words. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So he refuses. Naboth goes home. He's whining. Jezebel comes in. She's like, why are you whining? Why aren't you eating? Says Naboth won't give me his vineyard. She says, you're the king of Israel. Sit here. I'll take care of it. So she goes, you all. She sets up a sort of fake honoring ceremony of Naboth. And yet she plants people in the crowd. Okay? So that while this is happening, these people publicly accuse him of cursing God and the king. So he is immediately taken out and stoned. It is horrible. Okay? But it gets worse. Then you find out later in the story, not only did Jezebel do this, she also had all of his other relatives who could ever make claim on the land killed. She goes back. She tells Ahab, you got your land. So he heads over. He's in his land. And guess who God sends to meet him in the vineyard? Elijah. And Elijah says these words. Um, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood? Dogs will lick up yours. Yes, yours. And that's exactly what happened to him. Exactly what happened to him. This land was serious. <laughs> they would hang on to it with everything. Okay? It, it caused murders. You all, and I'm just going to throw this out to you to think about. This is still happening today. People are trying to steal this land that is not theirs. It is Israel's. It is Israel's. There was a 181-page plan that came out a week ago about Israel. Again, how to bring peace to this part of the country by dividing the land. I, I put a little map on here for you because I, I want you to see something. This is Israel kind of superimposed over a piece of land we're all familiar with. You can see all of Israel could be contained between Nashville, pretty much in Indianapolis, and it's not very wide. This is a small piece of land on the planet, and yet a day does not go by without this piece of land being on the news. Do you think that's accidental or do you think it's spiritual? Yes. Why is everyone obsessed with this land? 
because God said it was his, <laughs> because God said it was his, is very serious. I put as a connection here, you all, I wanted to copy this whole thing, but it's so long. This is a concise little history of Israel's rights to the land. So what I did is I put the link there that obviously if you just type right into your address bar, it will take you straight here. It goes through the whole history, starting with the Abrahamic covenant, and it gives you maps of various times throughout history what has happened. It's a great little article, and it will really give you an idea of what has happened to this piece of land over centuries. So go there if you want. It helped me understand this a lot. Um, oh, and again, and very quickly, it's not an editorial, so there's not a lot of opinion. Obviously, I'm not trying to sell you all on an opinion. Um, that's not my that's not my thing. I, I will tell you, just so we're all clear, I am unabashedly, unapologetically a fan and a believer in the support of Israel. So that's where I am. But wherever you are, I, I don't, I think this would just be informative for you. So little application here. Do you all know what's going on in Israel? Do you keep yourself informed of what's going on there? I'm going to tell you, I believe it is very important. This piece of land is very important to God. And he tells us, he tells us to pray for Israel. He tells us to bless Israel. So if you don't know what's going on there, Maybe it's time to just start learning a little bit. There are some great resources. And if anybody wants to know more than this pamphlet I'm giving you, I'm happy to send you some reputable places where you can go to find current information of what's going on in this part of the world. Very, very crucial. And crucial, you all, to your understanding of the Bible. It really is crucial. So, again... This land was so important, so important to be kept within the family that there's actually a law that was made to allow the keeping of the land within a family. Now, we've already hit a couple of laws throughout this. We saw the law of the Leverite marriage. We saw the law of redeeming land. This is the law that kind of... Um, no, I'm sorry, liberate marriage and gleaning. It's this law, the law of redeeming the land, that's going to bring this whole story together. So let's look at Leviticus 25. And I'm going to read verses 23 through 38. So it says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow redemption of the land. 
If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, then let him calculate the years since he has sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his own property. So there's a lot in here, you all. (laughs) First off, statement one, again, God is saying the land is mine. Um, Second, what happened if someone got into financial trouble, they were allowed to sell it for a time, okay? But this selling was actually more like what we would think of as a lease. You sold the use for someone else to use your property, okay? So once you had to do that, then either a redeemer within your family could come back and buy it for you, or if you got back on your feet again and you had money, you could buy it back yourself, okay? And what it's saying here when it talks about calculating the years, this is very important because everything was done on a 50-year cycle, okay? The 50th year was called the year of Jubilee, And at the year of Jubilee, everything went back to its rightful owner, okay? So you might buy a lease of land for one year. You might buy a lease of land for 49 years, okay? But on that 50th year, that land was going back to its rightful owner. And the same thing, you all, happened to people that had to sell themselves to get out of debt. They might sell themselves to be a worker for someone, okay? And if they couldn't get their debt paid off in that amount of time, the 50th year, they were freed. The year of Jubilee was a beautiful year, okay? So, what would happen when you leased your land or sold your land? It was given in a title deed, And think about that. Everything would be in a scroll, okay? The rights to the land were inside the scroll. It was rolled up. Everything that had to be done to get that deed, all the requirements were actually put on the outside of the scroll, okay? So you couldn't even open it up. You couldn't even take that deed unless you fit the requirements that were on the outside of the scroll, okay? This is very important. And you all, you will never understand Revelation 5 unless you understand this concept, okay, of this deed. So, most likely, and we're not told this for sure, but either Elimelech sold off his property, had at least before they left for Moab, Or there is a possibility Naomi still had it. She still had the land, but now she's in trouble. She has to sell it to get money to live on, okay? 
whichever of these two things happened, all we know is she was in desperate need of a redeemer. Okay? So Boaz is going to this man saying, here's the situation. Are you going to redeem? Okay. So verse 4, he says, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of the people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for no one beside you may redeem it, and I am next after you. And he says, I will redeem it. Well, that's not supposed to happen. (laughs) And obviously, ladies, we know the end of the story, but they didn't. There's a very high likelihood Naomi and Ruth were sitting there. This was a public hearing. They could have been right there. Can you imagine how they felt when they heard those words? Ruth, who wanted to marry Boaz, Naomi, who had worked to bring this whole thing about. And then the nearer kinsman says, I'll redeem it. But Boaz still has something up his sleeve here. So he says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So he's asking this man for something much more than redeeming the land. He's actually calling up two laws, the land redemption and the Leverite marriage. And he's saying, if you want to redeem, you need to do both. Okay? This is kind of the fine print, so to speak. So, a a couple things here I find very interesting. Look how Ruth is described by Boaz here. Ruth the Moabite, we know what that means. The widow of the dead. Oh, she is sounding better and better. (laughs) Now, in the past, you all... He calls her daughter. Oh, he talks about how worthy she is, how virtuous she is. Says, everyone knows of you. Oh, he speaks so highly of her. Okay? So, again, I think there's probably a couple things going on here. Um, He is not holding anything back. He does not want this man to take the woman he loves under false pretenses and then later you didn't tell me she was a Moabite you didn't tell me this oh I wouldn't have done this he is putting everything out on the table okay and it just made me think For a connection, you all, read Romans 5, 6 through 8. Think about the condition you were in when your Redeemer chose you. Think about what our list might look like if someone 
publicly put our list out there. Oh, this is so-and-so with this and with that. Whew. It's, it's very humbling, and it should make us all so grateful. Because just as Boaz still not only chose her but wanted her, our Redeemer is the same. So verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this is interesting, you all, because the language changes here. He at first said, I will redeem it, but he doesn't say, I won't. He says, I can't, okay? So it looks as if he might have been willing, but he's actually unable, okay? And if you remember, the requirements of the kinsmen had to be three things, had to be a close relative, had to be able to do anything that was part of the deal, but they also had to be willing. This was not forced on them. Again, it was expected, but it was not required. Okay? So now he's saying, he did say, I will. Now he's saying, I can't. You redeem it yourself. Okay? Now, a lot was being asked of him here. So we don't know exactly what the sticking point is of why he maybe couldn't. But he, here's what was being laid out on the table. A kinsman had to put out his own money, okay, for land that wasn't going to be his. Okay, that land was someone else's. He's just paying for it. So big sacrifice there, okay. And then, but he still seems to be willing to do that, okay? But then we get into, you take Ruth. With the Leverite marriage, you all, when that happened, the firstborn son was not yours. It wasn't considered yours. It was given to be the son of the man who had died, you're giving up your son. That is that a sacrifice? <laughs> Absolutely. So, again, we don't know exactly why he can't hear, can't do this, other than we know it will impair his own inheritance. This would obviously affect the inheritance of his own children if he had any. So there's several things going on here, but at this point he just says, I can't do that. Okay, so he relinquishes his legal right to the land and to Ruth, which of course opens the door to Boaz. So verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
So a couple things here. First off, look what the narrator is doing here. He's reminding the reader of the law. That just hits me as interesting. Um, because here, again, time of the judges, were people following the law? Did they even know the laws anymore? The narrator's having to remind them, this is how we do things here. Okay? This is how you complete a transaction. That giving of the sandal was sort of like a shaking of the hand. It was, this is how the deal is done. Okay? So, he takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. If you remember, and this is in your connection here, so you can dig into it a little bit on your own this week. In Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, we read this law the first week. Okay, and it's kind of funny. I know we all laughed, but here's the deal. It says that if the person refused to do this, okay, the widow could go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off, the sandal from his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of whom had his sandal pulled off. Okay, you all, could Ruth have done this? She had every legal right to do this, yet she did not. I think this shows a beautiful restraint on the part of both Ruth and Boaz. We've seen throughout the whole book, they seem to care very much about each other's um, reputation, and they almost seem to be guarding this man's as well. They could have done this, and they didn't. They had a le- she had a legal right to do this, yet she relinquished it. I don't know. That's a great question. Maybe she didn't know. Maybe she didn't know she had the legal right. If that's the case, and I would only think this. Okay, here's a huge crowd of people. And this has just happened. And he says he's not doing this. Everybody else knows the law. Could they be egging her on, even if she didn't know? Hey, did you know you got to do this? Go do it. They might want to be seeing this. You all, this gave them the right to call him by a name, a shameful name, which, again, I can only imagine would be something today like, Loser. (laughs) And they didn't. So it just made me think, you all. And again, this is in your application. You can think through it this week. When we serve Jesus, there are rights we must relinquish. A lot of them, actually. (laughs) A lot of them. I I know for me, you all, anything I have, 
anything I have, whether it be a possession or you all, whether it be an opinion or a desire or a want, if it crosses this, I am to relinquish it and go with this. That's what we do as believers. And that is a hard thing to do. But there is blessing. Blessing when we relinquish these rights to the Lord. So Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So, Boaz had bought back all the lost property, and as part of the deal, he gets Ruth to be his wife. Their first son will be given to Naomi to perpetuate the line of Elimelech. The cost he paid was high. This word bought is very interesting, you all. Um, this comes from the Hebrew word kana. It means to acquire, obtain, redeem, possess, and it also means, and, and these things don't seem to go together, but it's in the meaning of the word, provoke to jealousy. Now, to understand this, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 6.15, okay, where it says, For the Lord thy God is a jealous God. Now, in Hebrew, there's two different names being used for God here. We just know the one God, okay? But this verse says, For the Lord thy God, um, Elohim, is a jealous God, Elkanah. Elohim is Elkanah. Elohim, in Hebrew, that I am is a suffix that is our S. It just means plural. That's how you make something plural. So it's God in three persons. This, this is the word for the trinity of God, Elohim. Okay? So it's saying this God is Elkanah, a jealous God. Now, when we hear that word jealous, you all, it's hard for us to even imagine thinking of this word without thinking of human jealousy, which is ugly because it is always based on selfishness. That's why we get jealous because there's something we want we don't have, okay? It's based on self. Godly jealousy, you all, is a passion for the welfare of another, okay? And even though these things seem so opposite, I think the word, 
I think the reason the word jealousy is used for both is because they both come from such a place of passion. Okay? So think about the things that make God jealous. And there's a list here. There's a connector that you can do throughout this week, some scriptures to look up to see what incites God's jealousy. Okay? There's going to be a theme that you're going to find within those verses. So here he says he just bought back everything from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Um, This mention of the gate in reference to Elimelech is showing, y'all, he was most likely a very important person in the city before he left. And if you remember in chapter 1, when Naomi came back to Bethlehem, it was quite the stir. So again, he was probably a well-known man in Bethlehem. And then he says he had bought back Ruth, the widow of Malon. Did we know who she was married to before now? Mm-mm. Just We just knew she was married to one of them. It never tells us who was married to who. And again... I just find this interesting, you all, that Boaz makes this clear who she was married to. Now, I don't know if this is just interesting or if it's really important, but what it makes me think here is Boaz knew, seemed to care about, and was concerned about every detail of her when other people may or may not have been because we're never even told who her husband was. She was a widow. Her husband died, and they're just in this list. And it's Boaz that tells us who her actual husband was. So all the people at the gate and the elders say, we are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you through this young woman. So everyone is witnesses, you all. Everyone is celebrating this time, um, this transaction, because Mary is worth celebrating. (laughs) Our culture, you all, has cheapened marriage, devalued marriage, attempted to redefine marriage, and marriage is a precious, precious thing, and it is highlighted all throughout this story. Um, this entire book culminates in the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. And this entire book foreshadows the marriage of the Redeemer 
with his bride, us. So this was a three-part blessing that was said over them. The first part is pretty easy to get. Just says, may you be like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. We know they were the mothers who sired the tribal leaders, okay? The 12 tribes of Israel. And remember, we know from Naomi's blessing that the way to really be blessed, to have wealth, was to have children, okay? So they're saying, be like Rachel and Leah, have lots of children. The second part of the blessing, be um, worthy in Ephrathah and renowned in Bethlehem. And there's a verse here so that you can see this exact link. But Ephrathah was just the ancient name for Bethlehem. It's the same place, okay? But when it says, be renowned, be known in Bethlehem, you all, this is a city that is known, okay? Not many people can't tell you that they've never heard of the word Bethlehem, okay? Because, of course, this was the beginning of the line of our Savior. Jesus is born generations later in the town of Bethlehem, and this is the link to that city. So, oh, yeah, it will be renowned. It will be a well-known city. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So this is a very interesting character in history. Okay? I've got a connection for you there. You can read this whole story in Genesis 38, and I suggest you do. Dig into this story, you all, because there are so many details within this story And there's a lot of typology even within the story of Perez, okay? But just to give you some highlights, Judah, our tribal leader, okay, he has three sons. He gets Tamar to be the wife of his first son. Well, it says he was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord took him, okay? So she loses her first husband. Judah gives her second son. The second son knows that his first child is going to carry on the name of his brother. He doesn't want to do it, so he doesn't. You can read the details. Then (laughs) Judah says, you can wait for my third son until he's old enough to get married. So she goes into mourning, okay? Time passes. Judah loses his wife. Judah's in another town to do sheep shearing. Um, Tamar hears that he is in this town. She also knows that the third son is old enough to marry her, and he has not been given to her. So she dresses as a prostitute. She goes to the city. Judah gets her to sleep with her. She sa- he says, what can I give you? And um, he says, I'll give you a sheep. And, well, how will I know I'll get the sheep? She says, leave me your staff, your signet, and one other thing. I can't remember what. But, ladies, this would be like giving your identification and your credit card to a prostitute and saying, I'll I'll be right back for those things. Okay? (laughs) So he gives her these three things. She gets pregnant. Okay? Okay? Later, 
when he goes back to give her the sheep, she's gone. And everybody's saying, there's no prostitute here. No prostitute works here. Okay? Three months later, it comes to light that Tamar is pregnant and Judah wants to have her stoned. At which point, she brings out the staff and the signet ring. Okay? And Judah says, she is more worthy than me. And her son, she has twins. The second son, who ends up coming forth first, is Perez. So this is where we get Perez. Is this a weird blessing to say at a wedding? We're going to get back to that in just a minute. Let's finish through the story, and then we'll see why Perez is so important. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So there it is, you all, in that order. He took her as a wife. He went into her, and they have a child. You can see the family line here, um, the family tree of Ruth. You can see on here it's marked who has died, Ruth having Obed to Jesse to David, and of course, further down the line, we get Jesus. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be the restorer of life and the nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So God did not leave them without a redeemer. And he does not leave us without a redeemer. They say, your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. There's that seven again, very important. And you are what? A compliment this would have been back then. She's more important, not only more important than a son, more important than seven sons. I don't know that they could have said anything better of her. Okay? Um, keep in mind, please keep in mind, you all, this elevation of sons over daughters was a cultural thing, not a godly thing. There are many things in the Word of God that reveal a culture, not the will of God, okay? So that's, an, that's evidence of this. Then Naomi, this is verse 16. Then Naomi took the son, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this genealogy is recorded twice. We get it here, and we get it again in Matthew 1, okay? The genealogy of Jesus this way. If you remember, four Gospels written by four different people for four different audiences, Matthew was a Jew writing to a Jewish audience, okay? This is why his genealogy is to show Jesus' Jewishness, that he came 
from Judah. Okay, very, very important. And if you read for a connection here in Genesis 49, um, this is when um, Jacob is giving a blessing to all of his sons, very telling. You can see a lot that's going to happen to all these tribes through this blessing. But to Judah, he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. The tribe of Judah was given the right to rule. Now, it should have gone to Reuben. He lost everything, you all, through sin. He was the firstborn of Jacob. The firstborn was supposed to get the right to rule, the right of the priesthood, and the double blessing. He lost it all. The double blessing went to Ephraim and Manasseh because Jacob adopted Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He lost the right of the priesthood. That went to Levi. That's why all the priests have to be from the tribe of Levi. And he lost the right to rule to Judah. Okay? But all of the kings should have come from the tribe of Judah. They didn't, and they got into messes. Okay? But this was just to lead the way to what it says, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Read in Revelation 5, 5, where it says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That is our Jesus. Um, Verse 18. Oh, I'm sorry. Very quickly before we hit that. Also in this genealogy in uh, Matthew, you will see in verse 5 of that chapter that it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. So here we get who Boaz's mother is. Rahab. The prostitute, you all, in Jericho. The Gentile. The Gentile who protected the spies. And she later married Salmon. And they had Boaz. So all I can think here is the son did what he saw the father do. So verse 18. Now these are the generations of... This is so interesting, you all, because it seems like the story could have ended. Everything just got wrapped up, and it's a beautiful ending. Naomi has her land... Ruth has a husband. They have a son. This son is going to, is the line through which we get Jesus. Perfect ending. And then we have verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Why is he coming up again? Who fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Um, 
this is what we call a genealogical compression. And what it means is there would be some people missing in this genealogy because this spanned over 800 years, okay? Now, how they would do genealogies, you all, they wouldn't necessarily put every person in. They don't even have a name for grandfather. Everything was just father of, father of, father of. That's why you get Father Abraham, okay? But what they would do is highlight the most notable people within a genealogy, okay? It didn't mean it was incomplete. It just meant that it was to establish an incontestable succession by way of the most notable members, okay? And all 10 of these you are going to see are important for some reason. And because of time, I'm going to let you read these on your own. But there are some great people in this list, you all. So there's a reason these 10 are listed. But more important, or maybe equally important, to why these 10 are named is, is again, you all, that there are 10. There are 10. And if we think back, and here's your last connection for the week, all the way back when we read Deuteronomy 23, 2 through 3, when we first met Ruth, who was a Moabite, we read the exclusions from the assembly, and it states this, no one born of a foreign marriage, the King James does not put that so lightly, you all, it says, no bastard, nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. No Amorite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. Okay? We just saw Perez, you all, born of an illicit, incestuous, relationship and yet in this genealogical line (laughs) he is in the line through which we get David and later we get Jesus okay but he gives us 10 to show David comes right on time (laughs) the one who was supposed to be ten, be king, passes through ten generations. So he can be king right when he is supposed to be king. He is no longer outside of the assembly. Not only in it, he's king. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And when I think of this story, you all, (laughs) this beautiful story, which is all about redemption, think of what all has happened in this list. We have fornication. We have incest. There's prostitution. Look at some of the people in this list. I think in this story, 
of redemption, he is saying, there is nothing I cannot redeem. There is no one I cannot redeem. What an incredible story. Because ladies, this is the foreshadowing of our own redemption. We are going to end today very quickly. I'm going to have to get through this quick, but it's in your notes. We just... A little bit of typology because, again, I think it makes this story even more fascinating. Okay. So, we've talked about these types being just people or events that point to something that's going to happen later. Okay. It doesn't mean, it doesn't take anything away from the actual story. These were real people at a real time. All these things really happened. Okay, but they do foreshadow something deeper and something even more important than they would have ever even known. So, of course, Boaz, we talked about him. Obviously, who is this, you all? Jesus, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. Not only a close relative, okay, the Bible says he was made like us. This is why he had to be fully human to be our relative. Okay? He had to be able to redeem us. He was sinless. And not only was he sinless, he was fully God. He is the only one valuable enough to die for everyone else. So he is our close relative. He is able. And you all, he willingly laid down his life at the cross. Willingly did that for us. He paid the ultimate price for our redemption. We've talked about Naomi. Who was Naomi a picture of? Yes, yes, Israel. In order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. That's how she met Ruth. Israel got exiled from their land. Okay? You can dig into the history to see that. Um, Naomi is the one who is actually Boaz's relative, but she meets him through Ruth. She's the first relative, but she meets him after Ruth does. That's very interesting. Um, According to the law, you all, at, at least as far as I can see, there's no reason Naomi could not have claimed Boaz for herself. She passed on him. And Ruth married him. So this Jewish woman passed on the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer. It went to a Gentile. Oh, you all, that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, Most people think she might have been past the age of bearing a child. So that was probably why she passed. 
um, to really get the line to, um, to succeed. But for typology reasons, she passed. And a Gentile bride got Boaz. Um, Boaz brought her back to an, her inherited land. And you all, he also brought Israel back to their land in 1948. Okay? They got their land back. Okay? And they've been there ever since. And Jews since then have continued to go back to Israel. And he is not done with Israel. Y'all, he has a wonderful plan for Israel. It is different than ours. It is different than the churches. You all, we do not replace Israel. The church didn't replace Israel. We, we have two different um, beginnings. Israel began with Abraham. We began on the day of Pentecost. Okay? We have two different destinies. Okay? Um, we are not, this isn't the same thing here. Okay, but he is not done with Israel. And you can read Romans, what is it? It's either 8, 9, 10, or 9, 10, and 11 that goes all throughout God's plan for Israel. Next we get to Ruth. Ruth is, of course, the Gentile bride. This is the girl who wasn't supposed to get him. Wasn't supposed to get the Savior, but she did. She was a foreigner. She was outside of the law in terms of marriage. Yet Boaz not only redeemed her, he wanted to. Um, Ruth learns Boaz's way through Naomi. Think about how we learn. Ooh, we can learn a lot through... um, learning about the Jews. Ruth learns of her ways through Naomi. Um, Again, she does not replace Naomi, and she is the Gentile bride of Boaz, as we, the church, will be the Gentile bride of Christ. Next, I asked you to remember in week one, the servant. Do you all remember the scene when Ruth is out in the field, Boaz just happens to be there at the exact right time, and the servant makes the introduction. He tells Boaz who she is, okay? Now, with this idea of expositional constancy, whenever in the word we have an unnamed servant, It is representative of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the introduction. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws us. Okay? And in John 16, 11, it says, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. You know, the Holy Spirit's never pointing to himself. He's always pointing to Jesus. If he's pointing to himself, might not be the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. And in the story, the precedence for this, you all, is set in Genesis 
24, 1 through 4, when Abraham sends his servant to go find a bride for Isaac. What's really funny is in that chapter, when he's telling the servant to do this, we do not get his name. He's unnamed. But we know his name because we got it several chapters earlier because Abraham is saying, Lord, I don't have kids. Everything I have is going to have to go to my highest servant. Okay? So we know his name, and his name is Eleazar. Eleazar, you all, means helper. You can't make this up. This is so crazy. You all, this... The Holy Spirit wrote this, you all. People could not do this. It is incredible. So we have his name, but in the story, when he gets the bride for Isaac, he is unnamed. Um, Finally, we have the nearer kinsman. Interesting character here. Um, And I'm going to suggest, and again, you all, these are all things Study on your own. Look into these things on your own. Don't, be, don't even believe them because I'm telling you right now. Be like the Bereans in Acts 17.11 where they heard what Paul said, but every night they went home and they dug into the scriptures to see if what he said was true. Okay, that's what you need to do. Okay, but I'm going to tell you who I think it is. Okay, this nearer kinsman, the one who had the possibility to redeem, but could not actually redeem, is the Mosaic Law. Think about the law, you all. Think about the law. And and I'm going to say, and I can't find anybody to back me up on this. I'm still looking. (laughs) I feel like the law gets a bad name. You know, all, all we hear is, oh, we're not under the law, and we don't, the law this, and the law that, and you all, I am so thankful we are not under the law. Hear me correctly. I am so thankful we have a new covenant, and we do not have to do all the things they did to be in right relationship, but at the same time, it did Allow them relationship. And the laws, at least the ones we looked at in the Mosaic laws, and there are some that make me scratch my head. I cannot figure them out. But the ones we looked at, you all, they were for people's good. They were for their protection. They were for their provision. Okay? They were to take care of God's people. But at the same time, They could only go so far. They could not do everything. Okay? They they could not ever erase the sin of the people. All it could do, you all, was to cover it for a while. Okay? This is all the sacrificial laws. Could only cover their sin so they could have a relationship. 
okay? But it still had a part to play. And when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, um, this just makes this verse come alive to me. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So here's why I think this is that. That what the law could not do, Jesus can. What the law could not accomplish, Jesus could fulfill. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for this time. Lord, we want to be women who know your word, who understand your word, who live by your word, who are molded and made into your image through your word. God, may that be a truth in all of our lives. Father, we thank you for this book. I pray that every time um, we read it, may we see something deeper that you have in there for us. Father God, we thank you that your word is inexhaustive. Lord, we, we could read the same book over and over again, and you can continue to illuminate things that are there for us. Um, I thank you, Lord. Show us how to apply your word into our life, Father God. You are so good. Thank you for being our kinsman redeemer. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.